Detective Perez. He was shot again a second time while he was pinned down in the uh, apartment and we were unable to get to him because the suspect was firing at us. Hey gang, Palm Peace of Mind Industries is the OC of choice for the active self-protection team. We love their mission and the efficacy of their product. We love the flip top reversible clips. We love everything about them. They have removed any excuse to not carry OC. OC will solve far more problems than a firearm ever will, and I wouldn't leave the house without it. I just bought one for my daughter, and I have a good friend who used it successfully in a real-life defensive encounter. Get one at get-asp.com slash palm. Get-asp.com slash palm. Hello, and welcome to the Active Self-Protection Podcast. I am your host, Mike Williver. With me today, Craig Johnson, retired sergeant for the San Diego County Sheriff's Department in California. Craig, welcome. Thank you for having me, Mike. Now, full disclosure, Craig and I have worked together on a few occasions in my former, his and I former life as law enforcement in Southern California, and uh, I have nothing but good things to say about him. What did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, I always wanted to be a cop. Yeah, me, me too. Do you, do you remember what, what sparked that? Well, my dad was a lieutenant with Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department for 27 years, and I always wanted to follow in his footsteps. And uh, we moved down here to San Diego when I was 12. So my choice was to uh, get into law enforcement down here in San Diego County. My father wasn't in law enforcement, but I had a grandfather and an uncle who were, and my dad was a subskipper in the Navy. So I guess it's just public service runs in the blood. Yeah, I had a uh, cousin who was also a L.A. County Sheriff Sergeant. Uh, he's older than I am, but um, he was also, you know, just part of that whole family bloodline kind of thing. Uh, Craig, I know we have a large group of law enforcement officers here and on the YouTube channel that watch and listen, um, or will hopefully find this podcast and listen to it. And I, I firmly believe that you telling your story might inspire some of them, uh, if they're ever in a critical incident, to stay in the fight. So I, I can't thank you enough for being here. When did you start with the law enforcement and where? Uh, I started in 1989 with the 85th Sheriff's uh, Academy here in San Diego County. Graduated out of there in uh, February of 90, went to the jails for three years, and then I went into Vista Patrol Station. I worked there for five years as a patrol deputy. I was a training officer, training coordinator there, and then I went into what's called community policing, which is kind of a catch-all unit where you do a lot of community outreach things, but you also get very proactive in uh, working with criminal elements and targeting certain people that are involved in criminal endeavors in the community. From there, I got into uh, special investigations and working narcotics and gangs. And I did that for almost a decade. Um, And then I left for almost a year. I went to the FBI's Violent Crimes Task Force as a uh, task force officer investigating violent crimes, primarily bank robberies, in the the, uh, unincorporated areas of the county. Uh, Then I got promoted to sergeant and uh, worked three years in uh, Santee Lakeside. Tell me about your family, Craig. Well, my father was in law enforcement. My mom was a stay-at-home mom. We went to church, uh, First Presbyterian Church. They were older than uh, most parents. um, I I was born to my mother when she was 40, and my father was uh, 54 when I was born. So a little bit of an issue there for me growing up. It was difficult, but they were good parents, loving parents. And, you know, it was a Christian uh, faith-based household. And they sang in the choir. 
And uh, my dad was a choir director at our local church up in LA County before we moved down here. And then he continued singing in the choir. And then after he retired from LA County Sheriff's Department, he went to uh, Alcoholic Beverage Control State Agency overseeing um, alcohol sales, liquor stores, and things like that. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I hate to think that anyone's career, especially one as illustrious as yours, should be defined by a single day or a single incident. <laughs> but uh, when you get shot with an AK-47, it's it kind of it's kind of a defining moment. So that that morning, you were assigned to patrol in Santee. No, I was a community policing sergeant in Santee on that morning, and uh, Detective Ollie Perez had been called out from patrol on a child molestation case involving two young kids. I think they're around four and six, something around that age, maybe even a little younger. And then uh, it was early in the morning. I just started coming in. I heard the call on the radio as I was driving in in terms of him uh, being at the station. And then uh, when I got there, he just asked for some help uh, with an investigation involving the suspect uh, who was want wanted on child molestation. Uh, charges. His wife found some images of him doing inappropriate things with the kids and then contacted you guys. Is that how that went down? Yeah, it was his girlfriend, live-in girlfriend, uh, right. found video uh, on his phone of him uh, molesting them, basically. I believe she confronted him and he said that she that he was going to sell it on the internet to make money for the family. And so she I don't know, went to work or something supposedly, but then she called the sheriff's department and uh, reported it. And uh, she had his, I think she, I don't know if she copied the images to her phone, but she did have the video evidence uh, one way or another. She must've done that. She must've sent it or something. Right. Cause she had the video evidence and Detective Perez was able to see it. That's how the investigation started. Yeah, there aren't many more, any priorities higher than a, than a case like this, right? Well, you know, you have murders, obviously, right. that's a little bit higher level. But, uh, yeah, when you have victims, the children and, and this kind of horrific uh, things that people do to little children, it's definitely on the highest level. Tell us about um, when you guys went over to an apartment complex in Lakeside, California, and tell, tell us what happened. Before we go to that, I would just say, like, you know, in law enforcement these days, you have these checklist things that you have to do. You have to take a look at your suspect uh, background, criminal background, access to weapons, et cetera. And we did all of those things. We checked all the boxes. You know, he uh, he did have some guns that we knew about, uh, but the, the girlfriend wasn't really forthcoming in saying that he was uh, an avid hunter, that he was anti-law enforcement, that he was kind of one of those guys who was a little bit off the fringe in terms of his beliefs. So we didn't have that information, but everything checked uh, in terms of uh, our doing our job. And the idea was basically just to go over and do a uh, knock and talk. And having dealt with uh, suspects involved in child molestation, you know, through our careers, most of us in law enforcement have found that these people are weak individuals that typically prey on little kids because they can get away with it. And when it comes to being confronted by law enforcement, they're typically compliant and um, nonviolent for the most part. Yeah, I know um, for my old agency, um, I want to say every single, because uh, they dealt with international like child sex trafficking and, and international child pornography. And I want to say that 
the SOP now is that every one of these cases, when it comes to the takedown, goes to the special response team, just because we've had so many people, so many suspects kill themselves after the door gets knocked on. So that maybe, maybe that's a newer trend than when, when you were active. I don't know. It, 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 I think it is. And a lot in our agency, it, after the, our, our incident happened, they started changing that. Uh, they were, of course, they were a little paranoid about what happened and didn't want to see it happen again. And, but, you know, you have checklists and then this job in law enforcement, it, anything can happen on any given day. Right. It's, it's like a traffic stop. If you, if you can't pull over somebody for a traffic violation because you're concerned that you're going to get hurt or killed, then you can't do your job. This job comes with risks regardless. And everyone that signs up and pins that badge on takes those risks on every single day. And that's why, you know, you pray that you're going to come home to your family at night um, every day you go to work. If you run those checks and done your due diligence and it turns out he had a prior for, you know, um, bank robbery or assault with a firearm, what would you guys have done differently? I know the answer to this, but I want you to tell the folks. Well, if it, it, you know, just because he had a certain crime, it doesn't necessarily, but it's the totality of the checklist. You know, if it comes to a point where it looks like this guy is, is not somebody that we would be able to normally handle, we would call our special weapons SWAT unit and have them uh, do the contact type situation. And yeah, the sheriff's squad is one of the best in the world. I've seen him operate. It's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. And so in a situation like that, um, we would uh, notify them, you know, basically put surveillance up on the house until SWAT could get to, to a position. And they would end up doing what's called a surround and call out kind of thing. Right. And they, they wouldn't force entry on something like that because we knew he was home. We had surveillance on him while we were pre, uh, in the pre-planning stages. And so we knew he was there. Uh, we could tell he was getting antsy because he was trying to call her and, and trying to get her to come back. And in hindsight, I think that what he was really trying to do is have her come back so he could kill her and he was probably going to kill himself. Uh, but we didn't know that at the moment in time that those things were happening. Um, so we had our plan in place and we were basically going to do a knock and talk, just go up to the door and talk to him. We took it kind of low key. We had enough people in place if it was to go uh, south and um, cover perimeter positions and such like that. But we just took a couple people up to the door. It was Detective Perez, uh, Deputy Mike Spears, and myself up on the landing at the the apartment complex. It's important to note that it was a second story apartment, and you had a you had a railing to your back, and a, and would fall pretty far if you had to retreat that way. Yeah, there was one way up the stairs to his door, and then there was an adjacent apartment on the other other end of the landing, and. Um, uh, we got to the door and then one of my deputies in the uh, rear perimeter, um, Deputy Shepard, uh, Jeremy Shepard, said he started hearing um, a child screaming, crying. And we couldn't tell at that moment in time whether or not it was coming from the apartment or, uh, or below. We, we, we were under the assumption it was coming from his apartment. And so because of that, we changed the situation to you know, an exigent circumstance, believing that possibly another child might be endangered in there. And we went to uh, go to forced entry. And um, Detective Perez uh, was there at the door. So I told him, go ahead and give it a mule kick, which is basically where you turn your back to the door and you kick it 
uh, outward, it's a much stronger kick than trying to do a front snap kick. Right. And uh, Ollie was a big guy. Um, and so he was able to kick the door open. Then he turned and then started to enter. And as he entered the the building, uh, a shot rang out and it hit him in his uh, left arm. Uh, traveled... Go ahead. Detective Perez was struck at that moment. Yeah, he was struck as soon as he entered into the doorway, uh, hit his left arm, traveled up his arm, shattered uh, his bicep, the, the bone up in there, the nerves, basically gave him a dead arm. He was a, unable to use it. And then he went down. And as soon as he goes down, I put out uh, shots fired deputy down and uh, start transmitting 1199. But in between me, right in, in between me, uh, advising shots fired and deputy down, another shot rang out and um, it hit me. But I didn't even know it. Um, it basically went through the door frame of the house where he was inside of, and it split um, through the the two by fours at the door frame. So it fragmented the bullet. It was a um, uh, 308 round. Wow. Um, it was a it was a uh, uh, M1 Grand rifle that he had recalibrated from 30 out six to 308. And so he hit Deputy Perez at a distance of about, I would say, 15 to 20 feet with that shot into his arm. And then he fired through the wall and through the door frame, And so it fragmented into multiple pieces. And the round that hit me was only one round. And I, at the time I thought I would hit, was hit later on, I, I should say, I thought it was hit multiple times, but it turned out to be one round. Um, the round went through my um, forearm on the bottom, split my arm open, like a potato kind of split slices it open and missed my elbow um, and the bone. And um, then went into my, uh, ballistic vest on my left side and um, penetrated that and then into my rib cage, broke my ribs and then fragmented again into, well, currently I think I have about 25 uh, bullet fragments inside my body and they went from my rib cage area around my uh, forearm elbow area all the way down through my body to my tailbone where I have a large uh, fragment down there still. And uh, one of those fragments nicked my colon, but it didn't damage it severely to where they were able to um, stitch it up after they opened me up. And um, I didn't have to have a colostomy or ileostomy bag when your colon is severed, unlike Detective Perez. Uh, but then, in, in addition to that fragment that hit me, multiple fragments hit me on my uh, chest area of my uh, ballistic vest, one of which penetrated my chest um, very close to my heart and was embedded into my chest uh, above the rib cage. And then other multiple fragments were embedded on um, the ballistic vest material itself that I still have actually. Um, and if that round had not been deflected with its energy through those two by fours, uh, 
I wouldn't be here today. Any any one of those uh, fragments would have gone straight to my heart and, and blown up my uh, my heart. So it's a, it's a miracle in that aspect, but the story is so much longer and so much more involved as to what happened with Detective Perez. That's just kind of the beginning of it right there. So you definitely credit the uh, door frame and your vest for preventing that round from absolutely killing you. I mean, that, that would have been the outcome without those two things mitigating the shot. Uh, yeah, I do. I credit that in a sense, but I, I think I credit God on a, on a higher level uh, for saving all of us on that day because Detective Perez, he was shot again a second time while he was pinned down in the uh, uh, apartment and we were unable to get to him because the suspect was firing at us. Uh, and he took a round straight in the chest, blew a baseball-sized hole out of his back, severed his one of his ribs, uh, collapsed his lung. I think it took out his, some internal organs. Um, I don't spleen. I think is one of the few things. And he was he was just laying there. Now he had already fired off all of his rounds in his magazine because he only had his right hand that he could use. And he was stuck there and we couldn't get to him. And so it was just, it was a nightmare scenario in that sense. So when you say you credit God, here at Active Self-Protection, we don't shy away from talking about Jesus and how he's the center of everything that we do. Do you want to expand on that at all? Well, yeah. Uh, if You know, I wrote a book about it and, and it's called Shots Fired, Deputy Down. And Ollie did a lot of speaking engagements about what happened to him. And when he was in and out of consciousness, he talks about how he saw Jesus in a vision and he was dropping notes to him. And it, these notes explain certain things in his life and some of it was personal stuff. And then later on, he came out of um, consciousness and he, I believe he ended up talking to the suspect and said, I'll pray for you. And that stopped the suspect in his tracks from ending wow. up trying to shoot him a third time. And the suspect, I believe he fired a round off in the roof as one of his last rounds. And I think that was an attempt to kill himself and he just missed or couldn't do it or whatever. I don't really know, but uh, all he hit, that's hit the suspect uh, several times. I think it was three rounds, um, non-life-threatening wounds. Um, but he he did his job there while he was trapped there. And um, I, you know, it was such a traumatic event. And as a supervisor, you're sitting there, you're trying to be somebody who's calling for cover and you're, I'm on the radio and I'm, I'm doing all of these things today saying it's a shots fired, you know, it's 1199, which means officer needs help. It's the highest level call you can put out in, in your career and everybody and their brother is coming from all over the county, literally. Every but agency. I, yeah, every agency. And what I didn't realize though, was after I put out shots fired deputy down, when that round hit me in the chest, it severed the line to my microphone. Oh my um, Lord. On my radio. So I'm putting all this information out. I need. I needed a uh, ballistic vest because a, a tactical um, uh, entry, um, I'm trying to think of a, a it's a ballistic, um, you know, one of the ones you shield? hold up. What's that? A shield. 
yeah, shield, ballistic shield, sorry. And I'm, I'm calling out for that because I knew we had one at the station. I said, I need this here now. We can't get to him. We need it because there's no way we could go up there with him firing through the walls. He was just going to pick us off right. one by one. And I've seen that happen up in L.A. with uh, SWAT officers one by one, how they were taken out. And so I was trying to do my job. But what I didn't realize was, you know, one, I didn't realize I was shot. Uh, the the It caused nerve damage in my arm to where. It wasn't until after he fired his first two rounds, I then drew my weapon because we were on a, you know, a non-confrontational knock and talk type situation. So I didn't have my gun drawn. As soon as I pulled my gun out and put it up towards the threat area, that's when I realized my arm was split open. And I'm trying to communicate and get help for all of us here, but especially Detective Perez. And... Um, and I'm ineffective because I my communications were cut. And then I have Deputy Spears next to me, and he and we're trapped up there on the landing. There's an apartment behind us. We don't know what's back behind us, and we can't get to Detective Perez. And that is also where the stairs are for us to be able to get out of there. And so we're kind of stuck there. So if you if you had to if you had to get to the stairs, you'd have to cross this doorway where the suspect absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah, okay. absolutely. And in, because he was firing, he fired out across the parking lot at a CHP officer who was all the way on the other side of the uh, parking lot during this confrontation, which lasted over 15 minutes. And that's a lifetime in a gun battle. That's crazy. And, and you know, so it was it was a very traumatic situation. And, and the, the point of this talking about God and everything is I went through a lot of survivor guilt because of how badly injured Ollie was uh, at the, you know, during the shooting. He was in the hospital for at least 90 days. I know he had at least 30 surgeries and you know he was lucky that he survived because he bled out a lot of blood. They said he lost most of his blood at that time during this uh, standoff. And so for it's just a you know an act of God, a miracle that God was able to get us all out of there alive and to survive it. And later on in life, you know, during this, after this whole incident, you know, I struggled with post-traumatic stress from it. And I didn't understand, you know, um, all of the things that, the feelings that I was going through. And um, so I, I struggled with depression and all of these things that you go through during something like this. And I realized finally, after things started clicking, because a lot of this information that you're that um i'm telling you now i didn't know about my radio didn't work for over a year because right. the prosecution didn't allow us to see the uh, audio tapes um the videotapes one of the deputies on scene was wearing a uh, body camera it was, a, it was a, a something that they were testing out at the time so they they took they had video of him being apprehended and taken down and we didn't get to see any of that because the suspect was um, uh, didn't plead guilty and he was fighting it. And so it was a year later that I finally found out I, that I had put all these things out in my mind, trans, you know, transmitting all of this stuff for us to get help, doing my job as a supervisor, but none of it went out. So, who, so who actually put the, the call out that actually made it? Uh, oh, well, I got the call out, shots fired, deputy down, and then everybody started coming. And then later on during the 15 minutes, uh, one of the lieutenants 
said make make it 11.99 and at the time i'm thinking yeah i already put that out you know but reality was i hadn't and so you're dealing with a lot of unknown information for over a year and then at when he finally took a plea i was able to get all this information and i started putting it together for presentations to other law enforcement and that ollie and i both did along with mike spears and that was when i finally started learning the facts you know oh my wire was severed because I got to see my wire and I got to, and they let me have my vest and uh, all of this stuff. So over a year, I didn't know what was happening. So there was so much things that I didn't know. And I was dealing with all this guilt. And then I realized, okay, this is what happened. And then I go on and still deal with all of these things. No matter what, uh, through time, it gets better, but there's always something there that you're left with in these situations. And I think it has to do with not only this one particular incident, but it's 25 years of a career of dealing with a lot of things in law enforcement that are difficult and tragic that we push back and suppress. And when a critical incident like this, it brings it all back and brings it. Repeat repeat that, Craig. I was talking over you. I'm sorry. Repeat that last sentence. I said, I, I think that when you have a critical incident like this that happens, it brings up all of that 25 years for me per, uh, personally uh, of a career in which we dealt with a lot of difficult and tragic situations that we suppressed in our lifetime, in our career uh, as a coping mechanism. And then when something like this happens, you add all of those things into it. And so that was really what was affecting me was all of this traumatic traumatic stress from this incident, as well as the whole career of law enforcement. And my point is, is that I finally realized how God was there for us, not just Ollie Perez, because he saved Ollie Perez, but for me as well, because those rounds, I realized it was one round, and I realized that it would have killed me if it hadn't been deflected through that uh, door frame, and that you know, I'm here just as much as testament to the miracle of God watching over us as uh, Ollie Perez is to this day as well. And Ollie's experience, you know, if, if you ever have a chance to look him up, he's got YouTube audio and video, and he tells his story in depth. And I don't feel comfortable talking too much about what he experienced other than he has a big story about how he was saved by God and how this really changed his life. And he's blessed, you know, to be on this earth to this I'm day. Definitely, I'm definitely going to look uh, Ali up. I worked with him a couple of times as well. Great guy. Now, could you just briefly talk about how this, how this ended? Who made a decision to go grab you guys or did you extricate yourselves? And like, how was that decision made? Me- meaning how do they determine it was safe enough to do whatever they had to do to get you out of there? Well, that that goes to the story of God again and the miracle because the suspect ended up closing the door by reaching across with a stick or something. And so we couldn't see in and they were gathering people to get Ollie out and uh, a uh, tactical um, ballistic uh, uh, barrier came in to the scene. And as they, you know, they were going up, but Ollie somehow was able to get out of that door and the way he tells it is the door was closed and locked and he couldn't get out 
and he thinks it was a miracle and again that God was there and God opened the door and then Ollie was able to crawl out the suspect went back into the back of the apartment and just laid back in there and kind of had given up the fight and and was injured um and Ollie was able to crawl out on his own so the deputies that were there they were able to get upstairs and get them while we had backed into uh, the other apartment which was uh um empty not unoccupied and we were in that room there taking shelter so they were Ollie, and then the suspect gave up and then they were able to get us out as well okay so just through the listeners who don't know a lot about uh bullet wounds being center punched with a 308 there's no chance he was able to get up and open that door with his hands uh, yeah you know well let alone his left arm is completely shattered and he right. didn't function of it yeah so it's a complete miracle uh, that the door was open and that he was able to do that and and he believes it was god and i i cannot doubt him on that because it's just it, it, he has told us how much blood he lost in that situation and the fact that he was able to survive and get to a hospital in time because he was given so many pints of blood uh throughout his stay in the hospital it was an, it was amazing uh, the whole community came around to give blood to donate because there was such a great need for it. Hey, just a shout out to the Red Cross people. If you're out there, you're listening and you got a few minutes, uh, drop in to a blood bank or one of their locations or anyone who, who does that sort of work and donate some blood. If you can spare it, uh, someone's going to need it. After this went down, immediately after it went down, I assume be, because you had been shot, it wasn't a traditional or an Ollie had been shot so badly. It wasn't a traditional post-shooting procedure where, you know, you turn over your gun, you report it to whoever. So I, how long were you in the hospital immediately after this? I was in the hospital for uh, three or four days. Okay. Do you feel like your coworkers, supervisors, fellow, you know, sergeants, lieutenants, and deputies, and whoever else, do they treat you differently? And if so, was there any negative to that? Because one of the purposes of this show, hopefully, is so people will hear other people's story and maybe maybe know what not to say or when not to say it. Uh, you know, I, I got to say that the department was so supportive of us and, you know, everybody from my fellow supervisors, deputies, and all the way up through management, all the way to the sheriff and under sheriff, they were there for us. They really were, um, you know, eventually I did come back to work. And, um, one of the things that, um, everybody would say to me is, oh, hey, how you doing? And that's a comment that people would say just as a matter of casualness and, and friendly conversation, not thinking about, <laughs> yeah, I'm still up, you know, excuse my language there. Right. Sorry. But uh, I am still struggling with this. And I got to a point where I was like, you know, just I'm doing okay. Stop asking me how I'm doing because it was annoying me. And uh, that's the only thing I think people should realize is that people are going to deal with these things differently. Every individual is different. And um, every person has a way of coping with it differently. And um, you, you, you're not going to know what to do and say. You just, I think you can just tell them, you know, I'm here if you want to talk. And that's the, that's what you can do. It's not like um, after a loved one passes away and everyone wants to give their condolences and all you want to do is not think about it, you know. Yeah. And they, exactly. they well, so it's hard to be mad at them. But yeah, I totally get what you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And, and they weren't doing anything wrong. It, and it, it was more casual, I think, on their part. They were concerned. 
because I did come back to work and they knew that I was uh, deeply affected by all of this. Um, and but I don't think that they realized that every day when they asked me that it was kind of like, oh, stop, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it's a, it's a you know, when you tell someone you're in law enforcement, I bet you can guess what's the first question, like, especially a kid will ask you if they find out you're a cop. You yeah, anybody? Anybody. yeah, yeah, exactly. And, so, and yeah. I, I think there's a I think there's a misconception in the general public that that there are all these cops who are just dying to shoot someone who want to get into a gunfight. And I mean, there's always going to be a couple of knuckleheads that, you know, and you know who they are, but you can't prove it. But most cops would really love uh, to be out of business. We'd love there to be no crime. We can go do something else. Because as you said earlier, 25 years of the same job, for me, a little longer, um, we deal with everyone on their worst day, for the most part. That's primarily what we do. The worst day, their kid went missing, you know, their son was shot and killed, whatever the case may be. And that that post-traumatic stress is is very real. It's it's like you're in a war that lasts 25 years versus a, a soldier or a Marine who fights for however many months and all that, all that terribleness is packed into that short, you know, that short, relatively short tour. So are there are there anything, and again, this goes out mainly to our LE audience part of the audience is there anything you would have done differently in complete retrospect understanding that of course hindsight's 2020 if you could have done something one thing differently after the bullet started flying what what might it have been oh you know i racked my brain over that you know i wish i think back about how i should have just stormed in that door and just gone and got to ollie and risk everything with you know just throwing everything into the wind and and done that and that's part of that survivor guilt that I deal with uh, to this day that I, you know, that's one of the things I wish that I had done, you know, and whether I survived or not, I, you know, I, I, I live with that. And so that, that's a tough thing. As a supervisor, I did what I was supposed to do. I rallied up what I was thought I was doing, you know, didn't not realizing that um, my communications had been severed. Right. And I was doing my job in the moments that the thing first broke out, but we were we were uh, trapped on that uh, balcony, and I felt like I was not adequately able to be the supervisor on scene. I was trying to get another supervisor there to take over, but nobody had the ability to get there in a in a rapid period of time. And so, you know, I wish, you know, I, that's the only thing I can say is that I go back over it, and I wish I'd stormed in that door. And got Nolly out of there, and uh, you know John waned it kind of thing, but it was uh, one of those situations where if I had done that, I probably wouldn't be here, um, you know, talking to you today. How about um, I think another thing that the general public mis misunderstands is internal affairs or IA investigators. Was there any any IA involvement after the shooting that you had to deal with, and if so, how did that go? I didn't really deal with IA. Um, I dealt with the homicide unit. They did the interviews of us after the fact. That's a normal procedure in any shooting where you're either shot at or shooting somebody. There was no issues with internal affairs in this particular incident in, in, in terms of it being a questionable shooting, obviously because we had both been shot. And um, so I did not have that aspect of this in this particular incident. Let's talk about family and, and friends, non-LE friends, for example, fellow uh, parishioners at church what was that like dealing with was was there any issue there dealing with those folks as far as them wanting to know about it and wanting to talk about it and not understand that maybe you didn't feel like talking about it 
oh yeah, you know, everybody wants to know what's going on and what happened. And, you know, and you end up talking about it and you say the tell the story over and over and over and you and you end up reliving it. And that that definitely weighs on you. And in fact, you know, months later, or even you know, it's been uh nine years this September, but even years later, we Ollie and I and Mike Spears, we put I put a whole big PowerPoint presentation together because we had audio, we had video, uh, we had the radio transmissions, um, and I had crime scene photos all given to me. So I was able to do teaching and, and training for new recruits coming out of the academy. You know, they have at the end of the academy, you have law enforcement come in who've been involved in shootings and they tell talk about what happened so we did a whole big thing and it was a really nice presentation and that was great but it got to a point where I would tell about the story over and over and it was just like you know what I gotta stop doing this because it was just too much to keep going back over it and living it reliving it and that kind of thing because it still affects me uh, I mean I'm functioning now and and things are great uh, overall but there, there's something there that just it never will be the same because of what happened to me so let's talk briefly about your book. When I when I read, and I want to point out when I reached out to you initially a while back about the podcast, you you weren't all in, you know, at the first second because this is tough for you to do. And, and I want you to know I really appreciate you coming on. Let's talk about your book, Deputy Down. Um, it's not your fault that your name is Craig Johnson, by the way, and that there's another famous author named Craig Johnson because I looked it up on Amazon and was like, who this isn't Craig Johnson? Who is this guy? Yeah, so it is Shots Fired, Deputy Down. And there is an author by the name of Craig Johnson, who is the uh, Longmire author. Right. And uh, some people were buying the book because apparently they couldn't read the description of the book and who it was by to understand that, you know, that shows you the intelligence of some of these people out here that just will see a name and a thing and they think it's by this guy, but it's, uh, whatever, you know, it just... That's, it is what it is. I just it was, complained on Amazon reviews that they bought the wrong book. I'm like, that's kind of on yeah. you, man. Yeah, it was exactly, and and that's fine. I don't care. Uh, it, the, I didn't write this book to make money off of it, and it's a self-published book, so I didn't make any money off of it. I wrote it as a, a cathartic healing process for me to be able to put my feelings and things on paper, and to be able to kind of like. You write it down and then you throw it away kind of thing. You know, you put, you put it out there and I put everything out there. I didn't just put uh, what happened in the shooting. I put stuff about my career prior to the shooting and I put things in there about my family life and my, my struggles with, uh, with my family life too. So I really opened up and, and I let stuff out there that some people might say, you know, uh, I wouldn't do that. You know, I, I you know, I, I wouldn't do that. But it, for me, it was just a healing process for uh, me to do that. And and I, and it, it's out there. So my life is an open book, so to speak. And we certainly appreciate it. So once again, the name of the book and where they can find it. Shots fired. Deputy down. It's on Amazon. The other Craig Johnson. Yeah. Craig T. Johnson. Uh, you're probably not going to have this on uh, video too much, but that cross right there that you're looking at mm -hmm. is the same cross that I wear every single day. And there's a little interesting story about this. Okay. If you look, if you look at the cross in the book here, in the picture that I took, that has a, a fragment of the bullet. Now, that was the bullet that hit me in the chest by my heart. 
about four weeks after the shooting, I had to change my bandages up here and uh, it wasn't healing. The, the stitching on the job was really not very well done by the trauma surgeon. And I'd gone to see a doctor and he's like, well, you've got something in there. In other words, you've got a fragment in there. He's like, I can dig it out for you if you want. And I was like, well, I'll just, you know, let it work its way out. So one day I'm showering and cleaning the wound and I just kind of, you know how you pick at a scab and it's sticking to your skin, you know? And well, I was picking at this scab and it just plopped this big bloody mess comes out and I rinse it off and it's this bullet fragment that is attached uh, to my cross now that I wear every single day. And that's the round that if it had gone farther into my chest, it would have gone straight into my heart. And so I had it mounted on this uh, cross that I wear. And uh, it's kind of a a remembrance and also an honor to uh, God for saving us on that day. That's that's a great story. All right, last question, Greg. As I said, as I've said probably too many times in my first ever remote podcast, I'm hoping there'll be a lot of LE listeners um, from all around the world because the, the main channel has you know viewers from everywhere and hopefully they'll be listening to this. So if one of them who's listening now finds themselves in a life or death situation, maybe they've been injured, uh, if, you, if you could talk into their head in that moment, what would you say to them? Well, don't give up. You got to finish the fight. And there was a moment that I felt God's presence when I was, uh, we were taking cover in the adjacent apartment. And I kind of turned my back on it because I wasn't listening. You know, it was kind of like that. You hear the voice, you know, it's like God talking to you. And that's the moment that I think if I had done things differently, I would have turned and gone and taken the fight uh, through the door. And uh, I didn't listen to it at that moment because the, the fear of what was going on and everything got to me. So I would say, listen to God and, and pray and, and take charge of that moment. Cause if you believe in God and you have him with you, you will win. And even if you die, you will still win because you're going to go to heaven. So don't give up the fight. Listen to that voice that's in your head. Cause that's God talking to you and take it, take the fight to them. We talk a lot about spiritual fitness on this channel. That's a perfect way to end Craig. Johnson, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. And back with us again, my friend, Stephen Gutowski. He is an investigative journalist, founder of TheReload.com, and the host of the Weekly Reload podcast. Stephen, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. So uh, a couple items this week we wanted to talk about. First one is that the National Rifle Association has canceled their annual meeting, which was to be this coming weekend? Yes, it was uh, going to be the first weekend of September and uh they canceled it uh, just a, about a week before people were supposed to start showing up um it was pretty big deal uh covid cases in texas and especially in houston where they were going to have the the show have been surging recently uh, and hospitalizations have been uh surging with with uh, a lot of hospital capacity pushed to its limit right but uh which made a lot of uh, i believe the exhibitors big gun companies who were gonna go nervous about attending and and uh eventually a lot of them pulled out benelli or at least reportedly they they were they're going to pull out and then benelli confirmed to me that they were not going to attend about 
two days before the NRA officially canceled the whole thing. So it just became a sort of a cascade event. Um, you know, and some of the other issues surrounding the NRA with the accusations of, you know, corruption and the legal situation that they're in might've, might've lowered the bar for some of those companies as well to, to uh, be more willing to pull out of something like this. But in the end, it's, it's going to be a bad hit for the NRA. That's usually their biggest fundraising event of the year. And now they've had to cancel it two years in a row. So it's a pretty big deal for them. Yeah, for sure. Now, the other story I wanted to discuss with you um, is about uh, CDC director, Rochelle Walensky. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, is making a little bit of noise about the, treating gun violence as a public health issue. And uh, is the quote she's going to put her foot to the floor or something like that? Uh, and I, I don't, Yeah, pedal to the metal. It doesn't sound great. The optics, they, they have to know how this looks, but who knows? Maybe they don't. Yeah, well, so, uh, I mean, it, the timing is certainly odd, right? I mean, obviously we're in the middle of, of a global pandemic where the CDC, you would assume, has it's hands full, especially right now with the, the Delta variant and the surgeon we just talked about. Um, but the CDC director is taking time to do an interview with CNN where she's is committing to uh, spending a lot more federal money on gun research, uh, even though that decision had already been made uh, years ago. Uh, actually, 2018 was when the Congress repealed the, the ban on using federal funds to for uh, for the CDC to promote gun control. That's actually what the language of it was. There were a lot of critics that said that this just created a, a total, uh, the effect was that there was no gun research that was federally funded, or at least very little, because there was some, um, certainly. But uh, now we're going to have millions more dollars put into programs uh, funded by the CDC to do various kinds of gun research. Right. Um, and, and obviously, you know, this creates some, there, there's some reason to be concerned as a gun owner um, based on what the CDC had done back in the 1990s or some of the comments from leaders of the CDC in the 1990s, which led to the to the congressional ban um, where, you know, you had uh, Dr. Mark uh, Rosenberg at the time. He was the director of the CDC's National Center for Injury Prevention and Control. You know, he was quoted as saying, uh, we need to revolutionize the way we look at guns, like the way we did with cigarettes. Uh, it used to be that smoking was a, a glamour symbol, cool, sexy, macho. Now it's dirty, deadly, and banned. And so, uh, you know, he, he said they he wanted to take that perspective uh, and apply it to guns. Not, not a lot of gray area if, if, he's, if, he's, if he wants guns to be dirty and banned. I mean, I'm not sure how, how else anyone could, could take that or interpret it. Right. And this is the thing that always gets ignored when you used to hear debates about this, uh, the, the Dickey Amendment, the amendment that banned the research funds going towards promoting gun control uh, is like there was a reason that this happened. Right. <laughs> because, there, you know, leadership that CDC was saying stuff like this now. Uh, so people have a reason to be skeptical and be concerned about what the CDC is going to do, especially given that the Biden administration uh, is very pro gun control, obviously, and then President Biden himself is is a, a vigorous advocate of new restrictions on gun ownership, right. um, and he obviously appointed the the head of the CDC, and so there's there's a clear reason, a legitimate reason to not want to take the CDC at its word. However, uh, you know it should be noted that the current director, uh, Walensky, as as you mentioned earlier, she 
promises that this effort will not be aimed at promoting gun control, that she wants to work with gun owners um, to uh, try and understand why gun violence happens and prevents it. And she, she says that obviously uh, legal gun owners want that just as much as she does. Of course. Um, And and so her argument is, you know, that the new CDC research will not be intended to present, uh, you know, arguments for gun control. Instead, it'll be intended to uh, understand what leads to gun violence and how we can uh, better prevent that without getting political. That that's what she said. She says, quote, uh, I'm not here about gun control. Um, so, you know, uh-huh. you have what she's claiming and you have the history of what the CDC, what other leaders, of the CDC had said in the past, and you kind of have to, uh, you know, go off of that. And it's where I'm not, I believe that's an appointed position. Am I right? Does the president appoint the CDC director or I, I, we'll, have, uh, we'll have to find so, out. Yes. Because if she was appointed by a president who said during his campaign that, yeah, you know, I'm going to appoint Beto O'Rourke as my guns are and we're coming for your R-15s, all that sort of thing. It doesn't, uh, you know, it's it's not a conspiracy theory to connect those two things and say, well, this person appointed by this president is saying these things. And this president has made a lot of noise about wanting to ban as many guns as possible. It's worth noting, mm-hmm. folks, this is why the reload exists. I went over to CNN, God help me, and I looked at the actual... Um, uh, the video, and there's a transcript of the video where uh, Elizabeth Cohen is interviewing uh, Director Walensky. And it, the transcript opens with Cohen's voiceover, guns. They leave a toll of death and despair across America. Mass shootings, urban violence, road rage, suicides. I mean, this doesn't seem like a like a sane, sober report from CNN. So thank God you're out there doing what you're doing. Yeah. And that's that, like I said, like you, like you said, like you articulated there, that is sort of the point of the reload is to try and bring um, a a more rational perspective or a more informed perspective to this topic, to covering this issue. And, you know, as we just discussed here, there's, I'm not trying to hide what Walensky is saying. She, she's saying, you know, we cannot understand the research uh, of firearm violence, firearm injury, without embracing wholeheartedly the firearm owning community. I really do believe that the population of people who wants to own a gun doesn't want to hurt, uh, want people hurt by them. The majority of the population does not want people hurt by them. I want them at the table. So like she's promising these things, but at the same time, what a lot of media outlets don't explain is that there's good reason that people are skeptical of these claims. There, there have been times in the past at the CDC where gun research was intentionally used to frame the debate on guns in a way to promote gun control. And, and, you know, it's legitimate to be careful and cautious when moving forward with the millions of dollars that have been uh, set aside for this program to, to make sure that they're actually being used in ways that are not politically motivated out, out off the bat. Right. Uh, you know, and, and, and you can look through, uh, I do it in, in a member's piece over at the reload. I look at some of the, uh, research that's been funded already. Cause again, like that's another thing is the timing of this. Like, why is she saying this now when, when these programs have already been funded, uh, and the, the, the moratorium on this kind of research funding was lifted three years ago, right. you know, the, 
the the administration has actually received a significant amount of uh, criticism from the gun control community in recent weeks, uh, whether it's over the how much the White House has done to support its ATF nominee, who is a literally a, an employee of one of the major gun control groups, right. or uh, you know whether they've they've responded to some of the other uh, uh, things that the gun control groups want the White House to do. So the CDC director coming out in the middle of a global pandemic and talking about how she's making gun violence research a top priority after the gun control groups have criticized the administration. Uh, you know, obviously it's not unreasonable to wonder if those are connected. Right. Uh, and I, I got to say, we said this last week, I would love nothing more than to take director Walensky at her word. I hope everything she said is true. If it is true, phenomenal. If they can figure out a way to lower uh, gun violence, that's great. Um, you just, but like you said, we just don't know. We'll have to wait and see. And I'm glad people like you were out there following up on this stuff and paying attention to it. So I don't have to, I could just go to the reload and find out what's going on. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, like I said, there, there are some programs we can already take a look at that they funded and they're, you know, they're a mixed bag. They're not all, they don't all break down very easily into, you know, partisan boxes as to what their, what their outcomes likely to be. There's one that, that I talk about that's a little bit concerning how the pol the political aspect of that's going to turn out, you know, with they're studying different gun policies, uh, you know, how it's easy to see how that could turn into a, uh, a study that has a very political outcome to it. But, you know, some of the other ones are more about violence interruption programs that are less controversial, less, less politically mm -hmm. divisive. So yeah, we'll have to keep watching and see how these, these studies turn out. Steven, tell the folks how they can find you. Yeah, head on over to thereload.com. You can sign up for our free newsletter uh, where you'll get a roundup of all the most important gun news of the week every week in your inbox. Uh, or you could you could check us out on the weekly Reload podcast. We're actually going to have uh, John Korea from Active Self Protection on uh, an upcoming episode here. So that'll be uh, a really good one, I think. And uh, it's available on all the big podcasting apps. That Korea guy's a real diva, man. Make sure you got like, green only M&Ms and Evian water in the green room for him. <laughs> <laughs> Only uh, VP9s available. Yeah, yep, yep. Show. No, no, it's a no Glock. So, Steven, thank you so much for being here. We'll, we'll talk to you next week. 